0: Welcome back to the Life Deconstructed Podcast. I'm Nareet Ben. So season two took us a bit longer than expected because since wrapping season one, I had a beautiful baby girl, my first, and turns out having a baby means you don't sleep ever again or wash your face. But after five-ish months of sleeplessness and a lot of work from our fabulous producer, Talia Golihov, we're back with season two and more super interesting, inspiring women sharing their stories of how they really got to where they are and what they figured out along the way. As always, they come from all kinds of different fields and backgrounds, from a tech entrepreneur to a jewelry designer and one woman who spent days in tribal elder meetings in Afghanistan at the age most of us were at the mall. As ever, we want to hear from you what you think women you'd like to hear from, questions you want the answers to. So talk to us on Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod or Twitter at Narit Ben. Let's get to it. Starting at the ripe age of three years old, Kieran Sinha thought she'd be a dancer and took it so seriously, her mom had to tell her to take it down a level. When an injury put a sudden end to her dream, she ended up at MIT imagining life as a professor. Instead, she started a national nonprofit for young girls before founding the groundbreaking augmented reality startup Illumix. They've so far secured $13 million in VC funding, been named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies in 2020, and been spotlighted by Google as a partner in the AR game. Kicking off season two, Kieran explains why being forced to run up and down the stairs doing math helped shape who she is, how she faced belittling comments her whole life, the keys to making her a successful entrepreneur, and her secret to building rock-solid confidence. Kiran Sinha, thank you so much for being with me. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Likewise, I'm really excited to be here. So I love stories of women whose different paths and sort of passions that you would think that from the outside seem completely disjointed, end up coming together in unexpected ways in sort of a bigger picture that makes sense eventually, that reveals itself. And I have a sense that's a little bit of your story when you have this intersection of dance and math and engineering and augmented reality and entrepreneurship. So I'm really curious to find out how those kind of weave together and and one kind of supported the other. So let me start all the way back growing up, Washington, DC, Indian family. Were you one of those people who kind of always knew or had an inkling of what they wanted to do or kind of like me firing in all directions and (laughs) not much of a clue at that point?
1: I don't know if I had total clarity on what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I knew very deeply, I think at a young age, what I loved doing. And I, I think that's a little bit how I've operated throughout my career is when I love to do something, I'm fully dedicated. I've been like that since I was a young kid and early on the two loves of my life and in some ways still the loves of my life or math, I knew I loved it. I knew I loved it and dance. They both made me feel alive and engaged in a very similar but complementary way where math was very intellectual. You know, it was about precision. It was about creativity, I think, which is often not associated with math, but I always found it to be creative around the problem solving and just how you think about these concepts and this idea of absolute truth and order to the universe. I thought that was super interesting and only layered upon itself. And I loved that. And I think, you know, for me on the physical manifestation of that was always dance, was being able to, in some ways, have incredibly precise training if you grow up and do really any form of dance, but especially some of the classics like ballet or You know, jazz or for me, classical Indian as well. You spend a long time just learning the moves, the basics, how to build up to be able to actually dance. And then, after that, only after years of training, are you truly being creative and pouring your own self and your own identity into it. And that's, you know, when you get. And you go to the Kennedy Center and you see someone perform and people are moved to tears, it's not just because their moves are so precise. It's because they've poured themselves into it. There's this level of creativity.
0: Yeah.
1: And I I really feel very strongly that math is the same.
0: That's so interesting. I would have never put those two in the same group, but that really makes sense from what you described. The the level of study and precision that goes into it until a certain point where you can sort of be free in, in a way because you've mastered that precision already. And I think you're 100% right in terms of having identified the things that you love because I think the mistake that's made often is trying to figure out What is the job I want? What is the title that I want? What is the role? Like all of these things that are actually really abstract because honestly, until we actually get into a job, we have no idea what it's actually like. It's just kind of what it feels like from the outside, which is something I hope to remedy in one way or another with these conversations. But (laughs) if you're identifying what you love and following that, I mean, that's a much better way to get to where you're supposed to be.
1: I think so. I've never really liked the phrase actually, what you want, who you want to be when you grow up because in some ways... You're not trying to be a specific person or specific role. That's not who you are, right? That's never when I felt complete. It's, I prefer to frame success not in terms of what it means to be successful because it means a million things for all kinds of different people. But what's your mission? What is it that you're going for? You can reach your mission and you, know, you can have several missions in life, but you can achieve that through so many different jobs, so many different roles, so many different paths. And I think as long as you have clarity on what you're hoping to do what makes you feel alive, what makes you feel fulfilled, that actually will naturally lend itself towards the amorphous concept of success or, and give you the sense of career. But I was never, I was never fully driven by, let me put one foot in front of the other
0: in a classic career ladder. Yeah. And I would argue even the question of what do you want to do not who you want to be, which I, I agree with, but what do you want to do? because the the notion of sort of one job or career is pretty outdated, you know, these days. And it's a much more complicated path to that. Anyway, I do want to talk to you about success a bit later because I think that's interesting. And one of the things I'm always, interested in is the kind of changing perception of what success actually is, which I think maybe when we're kids and then we're say like undergrad changes a lot over the time. But but anyway, let's talk dance first, um, because it's pretty clear dance was a big part of your identity. But at some point in high school, that kind of shifted. Were you injured? Is that right?
1: Yes, I was injured when I was <sighs> must've been 15 when it started and it was all over by 16. And I started dancing when I was three, primarily because I was so bad at it. I was so dorky as a child. I would just tip over standing there. And my mom saw fit to put me in dance classes to correct it. And I loved it. Amazing. I'm still dorky in real life, but when I dance, I'm less dorky. It's just a different version of myself. And it was a very formative experience to find something that you love very young, to be passionate enough about it and willing to sacrifice, you know, the not just Friday nights, the every night of the week, the weekends, the the normal things, quote unquote, that kids did. I was training primarily.
0: So you didn't need anyone pushing you to say you got to go to practice. You have to do this. this. It was for you something you wanted. You wanted to be there.
1: I wanted to be there. I wanted to be there all the time. My mom had the unusual role of trying to pull me back and make sure I was resting and taking care of myself and being a a whole child and going to kids' birthday parties when I was like, I'm training mother. Get on the same page with me here. <laughs> so it was I think I was always a little bit odd in that situation.
0: I feel like that's a little hint of the, the spirit that probably made you such a successful entrepreneur. But, but we'll
1: <laughs> I, get to I, I think the personality probably leans in from a young age and, and of course, develops through your experiences. Yeah. But having developed such a passion, sacrificed and really poured yourself into something and then have it taken away yeah. was one of the most challenging incidents of my life realizing that i wasn't going to you know for me it was i had planned that summer to go to india and perform professionally with a troop i had you know worked towards that for a long time uh Mm -hmm. and that was what my dreams were and to have that pulled out it brought up a huge amount of doubt of what am i doing when you're filled with such purpose and clarity and mission and then that's gone it makes you go back to the source a little bit and say, well, why did I love this? What else can I find to replace this? And it took years. It's not that simple, of course. Sure. But I think that that's when I realized how much I liked engineering and how creative that could be and how I could feel some of the same feelings of freedom that I felt when I was dancing actually in creating.
0: You have this life-changing thing where you were so determined basically from age three that this is such a big part of your identity and your future that gets taken away how do you make the leap? You were saying it takes a few years, but how did you get to that understanding of engineering? Because again, I don't think anyone would be like, oh, wait, dance is over. What, What's, what's, the, what's the thing that can fill that hole? Oh, engineering. <laughs> and I know that you went to undergrad at MIT to do math and engineering, no less. I mean, that's no joke. I was very lucky that in parallel to
1: my dance performance, I also was all competitive in math. I did find that kind of dual pairing as the two things I dedicated myself to as a child and as a young adult. And so even though the dance was pulled away, I had the math to rely on. And that was what launched me into MIT. I found MIT to be such an addictive environment. It's definitely a specific flavor of ice cream that's not for everybody, but I remember... In what way, addictive? There is something intoxicating about being around a group of people that are all wildly passionate about something that's incredibly weird. (laughs) That
0: was what I (laughs) love. I I remember
1: so vividly, I never thought I would go to MIT. It was just not my dream college. I don't know. It was never on my radar. And I remember going and visiting the campus and going to Admit Weekend and meeting all of these kids. And it was so different than every other college experience where everyone was talking about their research. These are 18-year-olds talking about their research. And what they're working on or like the crazy project that you find in their room or something that just it lit me up for the first time since dance had pulled away where i was like these are all people who were turned on who are on fire to do something even if that thing evolves and change they were a light yeah. and that was what i was looking for and when i went to mit and i was able to be around those people those friends colleagues and classmates they kind of lit me up again. It got me realizing how many other options were out there that my life was not over and that I could use this other thing I
0: loved, math, and use it as the basis to really build anything I want. I think that's a great sort of point and reminder that the atmosphere you choose to be in, the environment you choose to be in can go a long way in guiding you because you don't necessarily, I mean, for you, math seemed a little more clear. I don't think it is for everyone, especially going into undergrad where, I mean, these days, like how much does undergrad really, unless you're again, engineering or pre-med, it's not any kind of guaranteed life path that comes out of that. So even if you don't know exactly what it is you want to do or what you want to study to be in a place kind of like what you did in terms of identifying the things you love, also being in a place you love, being with people that inspire you or that light you up, as you say. So how, how far did that experience go towards helping you figure out what you want to do afterwards, like where you're going? I mean, at, at that point, did you have any idea, let's just say that you would be this successful entrepreneur in the field of augmented reality? not a clue. I don't even know that I would have known really what augmented reality was.
1: I was deeply uninterested in being in startups or entrepreneurship that wasn't the crowd I was in. I was in a I thought I was going to be a professor. Yeah. That's really where I thought my life and my new ambition and dream at that time was to be a professor, which which isn't of course what ended up happening, but I did go to grad school after after MIT with the intent of becoming a professor. But what happened in parallel during MIT was This fusion of math and dance to create a nonprofit or what's now a nonprofit, what was then just an after school project program that I was passionate about, Shine for Girls, that gave me exposure to what it was like to build a company.
0: So, rewind this for a second. So Shine for Girls is an incredible program that's meant to get girls more into these worlds that, I mean, STEM in general, there are less girls in. As someone who is thinking, I'm interested in research, I'm going to be a professor, how do you actually launch, how do you get that off the ground?
1: I've always been very acutely aware of, of the barriers that women face inside of STEM. And that usually manifests early in school by math class, right? That's where you start to see some discrepancies in how people identify themselves. I'm a math person or not a math person on their Mm -hmm. confidence levels and speaking out in class. Like I've never, almost never heard someone say, oh, I'm an English person the same way you hear, oh, I'm not a math person. Mm -hmm. And so there's something that people really identify or don't identify with the subject that I always found kind of scary or harmful about the space. And when I got to MIT, I wanted to tutor and teach on the side in the public school systems, which is what I did. And that's really where I noticed the girls I would teach use the word can't a lot more than the boys. Boys would use the word don't. I don't understand this. I don't understand fractions. And with Hmm. girls, I heard what a big difference. One small word, what a big difference in meaning. Such a big difference. It's a few letters, but it implies such a bigger issue. And when I thought back to my own life experiences of what, what let me so confidently kind of leap and not be deterred by that, part of it was dancing. There was an amount of confidence that comes from that type of training and wanting to be a soloist and you're fighting for the spotlight night, not, not shying away from it. And part of it was also thinking back to my mother, who's probably the biggest inspiration in my life who did some truly crazy things in retrospect growing up where we couldn't remember our times tables or things like that. She would make us run up and down the stairs and scream it. And you just never forget (laughs) it again after that. And I do (laughs) like when you're
0: you're doing multiplication (laughs) while running up stairs, you probably, yeah, it's a formative experience. You just
1: don't. She would make us do all kinds of things where she really melded the physical and the mental
0: very seamlessly. So you were always actually blending like physical activity and math. (laughs) It wasn't just dance. Always,
1: My mom just always did this, not just with math, with anything, if we, of which memorization, she just, I think always had an inherent sense of kinesthetic learning was powerful. And it pulls you out of this headspace of sitting silently and still, and, you know, writing things down and learning in this very rote memorization into something that I think the body is actually much more tuned to, uh, And I started doing exercises like that with the girls. It went incredibly well. And I realized by incorporating a math element, you got what I think was the biggest issue, which is identifying the right audience. If you tell a bunch of girls who hate math and are not interested and don't think they're math people, let's do an after school math program. Right. They're not going to sign up, right? You have an inherent selection bias problem going on there. Mm-hmm. If you tell them it's a dance program, you get the right girl. And then you sneak the math. <laughs> You're you sneak it in. the math in there. A, I don't want to say it's a bait and switch, but it, it, it pulls in the right audience that can really benefit from this. And then it teaches them in a very alternative way where they don't have their barriers up sitting there doing tutoring problems, thinking I suck at this, which is not a great headspace to start with, puts them in a whole new environment, a whole new headspace, and actually tells them they actually can do this. They're 100% just as capable as any person sitting next to them. And those micro changes, I think, are the most important things. I'm a
0: huge believer that mindset and confidence is a muscle. It's a muscle that you learn when you grow. That's exactly what I want to ask you, because it sounds like you had that level of confidence that you didn't witness very often, where it's something that what you're describing in classrooms is the same thing that we hear about in workplaces all the time in terms of speaking up for yourself, in terms of having the confidence to say, I deserve this job or I deserve to be here. I can do this, you know, on and on and on. So that confidence that you had, is that a skill that you, by sheer, I mean, walking up the stairs or what helped you get
1: to that space? Yes, I absolutely believe confidence and most of mindset is a muscle. It's something you practice. You practice who you want to be, you practice how you want to think and how you want to feel about yourself. I, again, will credit my mother heavily here. I was a normal little girl. I had lots of insecurities about myself and had lots of conceptions of what I could do, or most importantly, could not do. And I would come home crying saying, I can't do this, or I'm not this person, or I'm not good enough. And my mom would not allow it. She would just not allow it. She She would put us on the piano bench. We played piano a bit growing up too. Uh, she would put us on the piano bench and make me scream. And I mean, genuinely scream. I am the best, or I am the greatest, or I am beautiful, or I can do anything. Like. Crazy Because I think there is this, this sense, and she still embarrassingly makes me do this to this day when I have these moments. Everyone has moments of negative self-talk and doubt. Yeah. And she would make me scream it over and over until you're really screaming and you feel it. You can tell there's a moment when you're going through the motions versus when you feel it. And I think there's something in the brain that clicks when you hear your own voice say something with conviction. Yeah, Your brain registers it as, oh, that's, that's the truth. And, you know, it's a silly and small exercise perhaps, but it really made a difference but i i think with confidence whether it's in the classroom or the workplace or really anywhere else it's what are you what action are you taking to fight that conception i think for me it was going out and doing things i was uncomfortable with forcing myself to do something i was scared of and being okay with the outcome it wasn't always great it wasn't always great there were plenty of times where i failed in that leap but it didn't matter because I realized it wasn't that bad to fail. It wasn't that bad to fall. It's not that scary. And when you actually do make it to the other side, it's thrilling. And
0: so another great prep for, for entrepreneurship. And I think that, I don't think it sounds silly at all. I think that's brilliant. Your mom's exercise because it speaks to what I think we all know, at least intellectually now it's easier said than done, but that our thoughts create our reality and our thoughts create our, not just our confidence, but so much more. So it makes sense that if you say something over and over and over again, if that becomes your language, if that becomes your thinking process, then you will actually believe it. And I have to say also on a personal note, I have a four month old, it's my first kid. And now I'm like, wow, that I'm like trying to imagine like, okay, this, I need to take notes because, (laughs) you know, I like the result, good result. And that's such a big question that I'm only thinking about for the first time in my life now is like, how do you make sure that a girl, anybody, but specifically a girl will have that foundation, that confidence and, You know, I don't have the answer to that. So I'm adopting I'm adopting that. Maybe (laughs) in a few years I'll send you a picture of of a little girl running up and down the stairs screaming. And I'll thank you for that. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So if we're skipping in your impressive, to say the least academic career, you had by I think it's 2016, you already have a master's from Cambridge and from LSE, no less. And then you decide to go to Stanford for an MBA. What made you think, wh- why? I mean, why?
1: <laughs> Let's just yeah, start with a that great question. I have a lot of uh, years of schooling. For me, it was, you know, I had mentioned Shine for Girls was this after-school program. And then it, it gained some traction in the media. The results were amazing. And so it became a nonprofit organization. Next thing I know, I'm filing legal paperwork and fundraising and hiring. It was a whole whole bunch of stuff I had no idea what to do with. And I learned a lot in that process. And when I realized after my master's degree, that's when I knew augmented reality was something that excited me. It was something that was
0: very creative. You are designing a new world. When when is that spark? When do you does that even first come onto your radar?
1: I think it was 2015. It was when I was in Cambridge. I was studying machine learning and I remember the moment in which you realized that you could run some of these computer vision algorithms on your phones, right? On, on mobile devices. And for me, that was a moment where I was lit up inside where I realized, oh my God, we can take a camera, you know, everyone has a camera functionally in their back pocket at any given time. And we can use that as a lens to view a whole different world, to architect a different world, to create this different reality or a different way of interacting with information or entertainment in the future. And it it was another moment, where and no I, one's doing that. And n- no one was really doing it. It was it was super early in the space. This was way before Google and Apple. It was before it was really a category. But I grew up and I loved Harry Potter and the Lion, mm-hmm. Witch in the wardrobe. And I loved all of these fantasy book series. And the idea of being able to bring some of that to life and to give people the sense that they were protagonists in their own worlds and their own stories, I thought was really it was really exciting to me. So that's that's when I knew that I wanted to pursue this actively. I didn't know 100% I was gonna be an entrepreneur until the next year when I was in London and realized no one was really doing it. So I was gonna go off and do it myself because that was my mission. And what I learned from Shine was that I made a lot of mistakes. And I, I, I always use the analogy of, I felt like I was driving without headlights. If you're good at reacting and you have quick reflexes, you can survive. If you're on a windy road, you hit something on the left, you veer right, you feel yourself falling off a cliff, you veer the other way and you just kind of try to survive. Yeah. But it would have been really nice to have some headlights and to understand what was coming or how I should prepare myself to to make this a successful and slightly less bumpy road.
0: If we can pause on that, was there a particular moment when building Shine, especially taking it to be a nonprofit that stands out as one of those like no headlight what the hell am I doing kind of moments.
1: I could pick any moment. You could pick any decision or any moment of like the decision, you know, to become a nonprofit, which may have been the right one, but there may have been other structures that made more sense. The decision to franchise, the types of structure we set up, the hiring, figuring out how to remove people from the organization, um, figuring out, you know, we're dealing with kids. So dealing with insurance laws in every state in America and potentially internationally, like it was dealing with school systems there were just so many things where i feel like i was making split decisions on what made the most sense to me at the time but i didn't really understand the implications the, the types of decisions i can make today and i think this is what business school enabled me to make was give me a sense of how all of these different pieces come together how accounting comes together with product management comes together with engineering and you know business development and sales and how all of that functions hopefully in tandem to move you forward and how to create a successful organization.
0: Yeah. Because it's, it's so much more obviously than the idea, which you had a fantastic idea, but the question is, what do you do from there? And I feel like a lot of people, founders or whatever it is, there's usually hear about someone, one person is like the creative mind. One person is the business mind. Everybody has their own strength. And it seems to me from a lot of the, the stories I've heard, it's about finding, you know, the right, kind of people to surround yourself with that each person is doing their own niche their own passion so when you decide in 2017 to finally turn your dream into reality and it involves so many different things i mean you're so well versed in math and engineering and computer science but how do you actually begin when as you're talking about it involves so much more like product development accounting and a whole other long list of stuff I
1: think it was identifying what you're really good at. I have a very strong technical background and I'm good at it, but I wouldn't call that my superpower. I think it's actually much more on the product direction, on the creativity. It goes back to the the love of math and dance. It was the taking the pieces and figuring out how to put them together and pour yourself into it to make something special, unique. It's like building blocks, right? All That's how I view it as all of these little things to get you to a bigger picture and figure out. How to continue building, and when information changes, how to move forward and come up with creative solutions. That's what I think I'm very good at. I think I'm good at taking the pieces and and building the picture. And I think I can go. I I call it perspective dilation. So I can look at the big picture and zoom into the fine little details of some number on a spreadsheet and zoom back out very quickly. And I think that helps me set direction as going up and down that perspective bowl, basically, and being able to see you know, we're all talking about this product decision, but this is actually not the real problem. The real problem is much broader or the real problem is actually much narrower. Yeah. And I think that's that's what lets me be good at my job.
0: That's a good life skill also in general, I would, I would say to be able to, okay, uh, often we have to zoom in on something that's, you know, whatever it is, the issue, the problem, the concern, but then be able to step back and say, wait, let's take a look at the bigger picture for a second and see where this plays into that, because often it's two totally different scenarios.
1: Yeah, it's often not as related. So I always uh, think there's a joke in the company that the most common phrase, if you ask me something and it's not urgent, if it's urgent, I can make decisions very quickly. But if it's not, it will be let me sleep on it. That's going to be my answer to most things is let me sleep on it, because it lets you step back from any one scenario. And really make sure you're thinking about it at every level. And I find I have much more clarity on the right answer when you do that versus when you're presented with two things you don't know.
0: But yeah, that's a good tip to also allow yourself that time and not to not feel the pressure to give an immediate answer, especially when you're the one calling the shots and people are looking to you for an answer to be able to say, hold on, let me get back to when I have a moment. How did you build the team initially? Because I I would assume that when you're launching something like this, you want to create the product and that's something I wonder sometimes in different kind of businesses, startups, whatever it is, is how do you get that first thing off the ground, a group of people, or find the expertise to actually help you take it forward? I think the initial team and even your team today, I think it's the
1: single most important factor
0: in whether a startup
1: lives or dies. I took that incredibly seriously. To start with, I looked around Stanford at my peers and found people who are passionate about the same space and who were willing to dedicate time over over summer basically to really build this out with me. And that was the initial founding team. From there, we were taking it very seriously. We had all kinds of early startup stories of we would be there by 7am and we'd be out by 1am and do, we ate a chicken every day at midnight. We would do a plank every hour when we were coding. We had a lot of weird startup traditions (laughs) going on in the early days before (laughs) it was even a company. And as that succeeded and as we raised funding, my time moved from, primarily doing a lot of the engineering early on, to completely on the business side. I would spend hours, hours every day on LinkedIn, messaging people, cold messaging people, people who are experts in their field, trying to get anyone on the phone just to understand a little bit more what I needed to look for. I was aware that at that time while i might have the idea and the perspective and direction i didn't have the experience and i think there's a level of humility that you need to have with that and so i was really looking at people who had experience who could come in and support me and fill my gaps and give me some insight into my blind spots and i think that when you find really good partners and when you can speak very passionately about what you're doing and with clarity people want that people want to feel alive in their jobs so many people aren't oh yeah so many people aren't alive in their jobs. And when they see an opportunity to be lit up by the people around them to feel alive, I think people will jump at that if, if they believe in what you're selling, basically.
0: Yeah. There's a reason that they say people invest in people, not even in ideas or in companies. What do you think you learned? I mean, do you have any sort of tips that you picked up from that experience of suddenly going from a very product oriented, tech minded, person and role to suddenly doing all this business stuff and a ton of networking and you know trying to, as you say, learn as you go on this whole other side that is so essential in making anything happen. Really, even on a personal level, forget building a company, but certainly when building a company.
1: I found that when I was most successful, it was when I was trying the least to be business-y. And you'd have to ask someone else to know for certainty, but I think what makes me stand out in those kind of networky scenarios, is I'm really trying to just stay as authentically me as possible. And what I'm good at, again, is taking those ideas and either breaking it down into building blocks or building it back up into something else is, I've thought about every part of my company, of my market. What are the assumptions I'm making? I understand that if how you move any one of those blocks, what implication it will have. And I think when people ask you about what you're doing and why you're doing it, And what about X or Y or, you know, why are you assuming this? I know those answers because I've thought about them very deeply. And I think that that is something that makes you stand out. So I think it's whatever it is that's your strength, lean into that very heavily, lean into the style that works for you. I don't particularly believe, and I think GSB, uh, you know, Stanford Business School did not do this. And I give them a lot of credit for saying, this is how you pitch, this is how you sell yourself. This is, there's not actually, I think, a, one, two, three formulaic way to do it. I think it's about architecting that performance functionally, right? It is in some ways performance.
0: Performance, back to dance again.
1: Back to dance, it is a performance art. Back to what you're great at.
0: Yeah, and I mean, people can see right through, especially I'm sure VCs who are see hundreds of people, I don't know, a day, a week, whatever it is, but someone who is just trying to follow a one, two, three step program of how to pitch versus just really talking about what they are excited about and what they know and doing it in the style that is them. I think that it makes sense that that's a completely different experience. And one is much more compelling than, than the other. Yes. So for people who aren't familiar with the details here, you have, I think something around 13 million in VC funding Listed as one of Fast Company's most innovative companies in 2020, spotlighted by Google as a partner to further enhance AR, a little company. I I don't know if you guys have heard about it. Google, it's like a search thing, you can look into it. How was the process of raising funding also? Because this makes me think of the math class, of what you're teaching girls in Shine, of all this stuff, because It's kind of like a magnified version of that and the workplace stuff we hear about, you know, with women versus men and knowing your worth and asking for things. And frankly, even just asking for money, period. Like even freelancers who are doing small local stuff, that's an issue. Like asking for money and asking for what you think you're worth. So how do you do that on such a big scale? What was that experience like?
1: You know, with fundraising, I never try to frame it as asking for money, even in my own head. That's not I almost don't associate it with that. I think boils down to again, thinking about the bigger mission of what are you trying to do? What is the mission of this round? What is this growth fueling? Why is this the right time? And I think for me, it I actually do very much associate the actual act of pitching with performing a dance performance. I have almost the exact same cycle of emotions that I was used to before I'd perform or right before I'm super nervous. And then the second I step you know, into the room or onto stage, I'm incredibly calm and I feel totally at home and in place. And so I definitely.
0: How do you prepare for that? Because I know you prepare so much for the dance performance. Obviously, you prepare a lot for this, and you're prepared by nature because, as you said, you know the material. But if I tell you tomorrow you have a big pitch meeting with another VC or whoever it is, what's your process?
1: Well, if it's assuming you don't need a, if you need a pitch deck, you need to put together your pitch deck and make sure your story is well outlined. But if you're just telling me I have a meeting and it's important, in some ways. I don't know quite how to frame this. I don't prepare all that much. That's actually how I approach most of these things, even when I'm speaking at events or things like that. Is the preparation isn't, I think, a one off activity for me. It's I'm preparing for my job, my industry, and my role every day. It's how I wake up and I read the news. It's how I think about during the shower what's coming up next, you know, like what are the things that are going to kill me? It's in the weekly reviews I do with myself saying, what are the three th- problems going on right now that if I had a magic wand, I would address? And how much do these need to be addressed? It's it's the built-in daily, weekly, monthly habits you have, not the one-off preparations. And so typically, when I have those types of meetings, I walk in and try to ground myself in the confidence that I know what I'm talking about for my own self and my company. And I just take some of the pressure off of it of At minimum, I'm going to talk to some people who are very smart, who have a totally different perspective on the industry, have probably seen things that I don't have access to see. And how can I have an interesting conversation or have them enlighten me in some way that I don't know already? I think a lot of it is about the mindset you approach it with. And I think if you really view it as this is hopefully just a productive conversation and we see where it goes from there, it just lowers my pressure.
0: Yeah, I think that's fantastic and makes sense for so many different scenarios to, on one hand. Go in prepared, not for that specific thing necessarily, but as a baseline for what you're doing, that constant state of learning and exploring and preparation. And also to be open that you might not know things and you're going to learn things, to not go in also on the other end of the confidence spectrum of thinking, you know, I know everything and I'm just going to tell you about it and I don't have anything to learn. You just mentioned, for example, you know, those three problems a week, which I think is a really cool tool. So is there anything else that stands out in terms of major lessons learned or tough points in this whole process of of building the company? Because I'm sure there is like a nonstop learning curve.
1: It's a nonstop learning curve. It's it's part of what I like about the job, if I'm totally honest, even though I never feel 100 percent like just when I get my footing and I feel really confident in what I'm doing day to day, something will come in and completely throw me for a loop and force me to learn. And But you're never bored. Never bored. Never bored. That, that I can say with certainty. But I think the biggest thing I've learned is how non-urgent in some ways most things are. It is so easy. And I was really bad at this, I think, when I was a younger founder. Every crisis... And there's a crisis every day. There's a crisis every week. There's a constant crisis going on in startup land. Doesn't matter what the scale is. There's something going down and, you know, all of the hairs on your body kind of sit up of it's a crisis. I have to address it. I need to get into this now. I need to drop everything about my life and what I'm doing. And it, it fries you out. And that was something that was happening so regularly over things that now that I realize it goes back to my can I sleep on it of most things don't need to be answered in less than a 24 hour period. They don't. And it's more likely better for you, for the company, for your longevity mindset and sanity to just sleep on it. That's a really simple way that I've implemented not freaking out. Or, you know, some, a lot of times things will happen externally that feel like they're happening to you only. I think about it like a 3D movie where you're sitting there and you're feeling like that thing is flying at me, like I'm about to get eaten by a shark or whatever it is. But everyone is kind of feeling that way. It's going on with everyone. I think being able to step out when you have competitors arise in the field or new technology or you know, even a million things that could happen to step back and say, it doesn't matter. Everyone's going to feel this way at some point. And I just have to stay focused on me and my mission and bringing in the best people and growing those people. And if I stay really true to what it is that is happening in my micro kind of environment in my microspace... That's what matters the most. So it's a combination of putting on your blinders, I think, and then taking a step back because it is really rare. It happens, of course, but it is rare that something is so on fire that you can't at minimum take an hour to go on a walk and think about
0: it. Yeah, And there's also a culture that we grow up in, I think, especially in the U.S. of urgency. I mean, when you say that you can't take an hour, it honestly makes me just think of lunch at most workplaces where... It's like, you better go down, you better buy your sandwich, run back up, eat it at your desk. Like, I remember feeling like that, honestly, at such, even at GQ, I worked at GQ magazine for a while in between other, you know, broadcast and journalism experience. And, you know, there's a couple of weeks where things are closing and it's super intense. And yeah, even that I'm like, you know, come on, I can eat a sandwich downstairs for half an hour, but there's this urgency culture all the time. That I think that's really good advice. Not even in the more extreme situation of leading of startup, but of saying like, okay, maybe it's not that serious. Maybe I can take a minute. Like, it's not life or death.
1: I I think that's right. I mean, I think once you realize that everything is always on fire, you kind of sit back and the flames (laughs) and the smoke and just breathe in that moky You don't feel so
0: hot anymore. Yeah, you don't
1: feel as scared anymore. You're just like. This is what life is like now, I guess. This is what breathing feels like. Um, and, and you readjust. And I think for me, one of the big things I've learned about in terms of that sanity and that balance is there's this culture that's created that I, that doesn't work for me personally. I'm sure it works for some people of, you know, you work like crazy during the weekdays and then the weekends you have off. Yeah. This, this sense of, I don't have to look at my email. I don't need to do work because this is my time and the weekdays are my company's time. And You know, as a founder, first of all, like it's never impossible, right? So it's it's completely impossible to turn off. But I find I do much better when it's more built out. Of I'll take an hour to go on a walk, or I'll take you know time to cook my dinner, or do things like that during the weekdays. But I also don't treat my weekends as that that dissimilar. I like doing some work on the weekends. I actually find it not that it burns me out, but that it gives me energy to be able to take time to myself and enjoy and think about projects or the future or you know, solve problems that I didn't have the space to do in the context of a work week. And so I think... Yeah, being in a different environment. Yeah, spreading out the work over more days. It's shocking how much that calms you down across the board, I think, for me.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you how you manage to not burn out at that kind of pace, leading something like this, especially when you were mentioning, you know, one of the things I, I picked up is the competition that starts. I'm sure that can be stressful when you're building something and you're ahead of the game. And you've had this idea for so many years before other people were thinking about, and then all of a sudden other people start catching up when you have these all kinds of tech giants, Mm -hmm. you know, how you manage to, to take a deep breath and, and still have that kind of balance or not burn out. So I guess part of it for sure is, is that kind of pacing, right?
1: Yeah, it's pacing. And look, I'm a competitive person. I've always been a competitive person. I used to have our competitors on a Wanted Dead or Alive poster behind (laughs) my desk, right? So I'm not going to pretend that I'm not competitive. But at the same time, as much as it's kind of a joke, and obviously, I do want to win, I want to win badly. It's really important, especially in new spaces to understand that it's a all ships rise scenario, as more people are interested in the space as these big tech giants, which can be intimidating, come into the space, I think you have to really think about it as it's a validation of what you do. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's a validation of what you do. It's, it's growing the market space. It's growing consumer familiarity of what you do. Right. Awareness. And if you can't win in those environments because you haven't built something that's efficient enough, far ahead enough, better enough, whatever it is, maybe just more nimble, right? which is often where start, startups can win, then you were never going to win.
0: I, I like that also in terms of, again, I keep taking these things to the, I think, the zooming in and zooming out. Because a lot of your experience feels to me like it is good lessons learned and reminders for other situations too. It makes me think also of the situation of women at work and supporting each other at work. I don't know if that's a thing you that you've encountered at all, but I think definitely, definitely in broadcast news space, I think in a lot of other things, that feeling of there's only one slot for this particular person or for this woman or whatever it is. And then this kind of like inherent vibe of competition that really is not the good kind of competition, you know, versus like you're saying, actually, all ships rise. Actually, that's not the case. And everybody needs to lift each other up. Um, I do want to ask you also another kind of stream of consciousness, the thing that, you know, this reminded me of when you were talking, I think you recently wrote a post about some of the negative comments that you get about your personal experience working in tech. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, what do what exactly did people have a problem with here?
1: Oh my, uh, yeah. So uh, I think what you're referencing is I started microblogging functionally on Instagram a little bit more in the last year since COVID. Yeah. And what was always shocking to me is whenever I posted, and maybe shocking isn't the right word. What was always annoying to me is whenever I posted anything that highlighted something I had achieved or done, whether it was you know the STEM degree or something that we accomplished in the startup or something that I really wouldn't expect much pushback around, I would get this sort of primarily men um, saying, this isn't real. It's daddy's money. Like you've only ever benefited from being a minority woman in STEM. Like, oh, how dare you say that? It, it was almost like they were personally affronted or offended by things I have experienced, right? Like, There were, I mean, even in academia, math professors that would say, "Hun, are you lost?" Things
0: like that, right? Oh God! Oh, it happened to me for ages and ages, right? I I remember. Wait, can I just pause there for one second? If a math professor says, "Oh, hun, are you lost?" I have a pet peeve about the word "hun," so it extra bothers me. (laughs) Um, But what do you what do you say to that? Especially as a student, because your professor is like, you know, you. It's a very specific kind of dynamic. It's a power dynamic.
1: I just said no. I'm not are you lost? Like I almost try and treat everything as though it's a genuine question. And how would I answer it if it was a genuine question that tends to throw people off, right? Uh, occasionally, I snap. I know uh, my favorite full snap story was I was in line for a long time applying for a job at uh, one of the big finance firms. I won't, I won't mention which one. And it was at a job fair or something that MIT threw. And I'd been in line forever. I was one of the only women. I handed him my resume and he said, all right. I think he said, "Hun," and it was like, all right, Hun or sweetie, let's see if you're even smart. Yeah. And I just mentally snapped. And I said, I'm effing smart. The question is, are you smart enough to hand me this job right now before I walk out? And he did. He looked at my resume for a second. He looked at me and I think he was like, she's got balls. She's a little crazy and clearly has it to back it up. And I got the interview and the job wow. from that. Bravo! And so there's there are moments where I do snap. But for the most part, I've been dealing with those types of comments forever, whether it was in academia, in school, from peers, from professors, from uh, even in my first internship, there was... A guy who was going around saying I was only hired because I was a woman and that I wasn't that good at what I did, which wasn't true, but really threw me for a loop wow. as an 18 year old. Um, you know, that's been going on my whole life and career. It's not surprising that randos on Instagram also feel the need to comment. Like, in some ways, they're the least relevant of all sure. of these stories. <laughs> yeah. And it's
0: much easier to do that versus. Um,
1: yeah, I, I don't really care. And honestly, yeah. the type of person that's spending their energy making those comments instead of you could just look it up. If you think my company isn't real, just Google it, go to the website, play one of our very public products. There's a million ways you could spend your energy better to question those things versus trying to break down what it is that I've achieved and minimize what I've been through. And I think ultimately it just comes from trying to stop the narrative and stop my voice, which is the one thing I will not allow... And it's the reason I did that post. For me, again, it's tiring. I've been hearing this my whole life. Didn't think I was going to write about it. But yeah. I remember how discouraged I was in so many of those moments, whether it was from the mentors or the the professors or even the peers who would say, you wear a lot of mascara for math class where it's like, what? Oh, my God. You, you stare at my eyelashes. I will continue to crush you in this class. <laughs> Knock yourself out. <laughs> um, but, you know, just whatever it was, there's always something. and. They did knock me down. And I was lucky that I have an amazing support system in my friends and my family and my mother that always lifted me back up and wouldn't let me stop and wouldn't let me give in to that. But so many women don't have that. And they should know that if you continue and if you can find the fortitude within yourself to move down that path, the narrative will change and that it is worth it in the end. And so I just wanted
0: to say that you mentioned the support system around you, how much has having, you know, certain group of friends or how did you build or let's say curate that group? Because that's something I have to say, I think about, I think the older you get all our life, we have some kind of structure in high school, middle school, you know, you have a structure that allows you to have this, you know, whatever friend group it is. Although in high school, it's probably usually more damaging than not. (laughs) Um, And then college, same thing. You have like a campus, you have, you know, And then the older you get, the more you're out of those kinds of structures, but almost the more important it is to have those really good friends that serve a good purpose in your life. Yes. have you found that?
1: I think it's probably the single most important decision you make day to day that people discount the most, who you give your energy to, who you spend your time with, whether that's in your personal life, in your workspace, in your support system that's really what's going to determine, I think, not to be dramatic. And ways, your life direction, right? It's the moments where you yourself doubt or question or feel down about your own internal, internal North Star that you need the people around you to remind you and to know you and to support that direction. And so for me, you know, my closest group of friends I've found over a number of experiences, we weren't all a squad from day one. I don't even think we're necessarily a squad today. We're just individuals that have deep connections with one another. And I think it's been, it's who sticks with you during the down moments. And, you know, for me, sometimes I need the kind of kick in the butt to say, you know, stop giving into this feeling or you're being too narcissistic right now or too whatever. They you say, pull yourself together, woman, yeah. and keep going. A lot of my close friends have that in common, I've noticed. Um, it's what I like to surround myself with.
0: That's really important, though, to have people that both feel like they they can, you know, tell it to you straight and that you can receive it from because yeah. that's going not always happen. I
1: think it's a, it's a support and respect thing. It's It's who's there that you feel that you connect with, who understands who you are, sees outside of just what you do or what you've accomplished and things and sees who you are and can really appreciate and support that. And and that's what they're basically like optimizing for at any given time. When you give them crisis or you give them good news or anything, they're really viewing it as, is this you? Is this fulfilling you? Is this who you are? I think those are the people who I felt really understand me at a fundamental level that have stuck with me through the years. And it's it's just so critical. And they all do... They all do inspire me in different ways. They, you know, back to the MIT thing, they, they light me up, what they do, how they behave in their worlds and their relationships and their careers, what they're looking at doing. I mean, I have the most incredible group of friends and, and outside of that, like, you know, I have the most incredible mother who was totally a pioneer. Even my grandmother who came over as a woman of color, who was a full doctor wearing the Indian clothes, Saudi in 1960. Right, like Mm -hmm. that's really early, but just—I
0: imagine she had her share of people uh, of people saying, "Let's see if you're smart enough." And
1: far worse, are you wearing the 1960s? Then, yeah, like no, far worse. We've come a long way. I
0: can only imagine underestimating her. Yeah,
1: but it just—I think having grown up in an environment like that, where the women were these powerhouses who had been underestimated their whole lives, never had anything handed to them, and fought tooth and nail but still were i think incredible and confident and gracious that was the biggest blessing for me in seeing how to behave and how to conduct myself and i think knowing that that's who i wanted to be and how i wanted to be helped me choose people that i think were aligned with those values who were pushing themselves but only doing it in the right way which i yeah. think is not always a given
0: sure absolutely not And a note on being underestimated reminds me of Jane Ferguson, an amazing war correspondent that was on season one. And she said being underestimated has often been her greatest asset in all kinds of places, you know, in in life, from dealing with the Taliban to Washington, D.C. network news politics. So just a... to highlight that. I think that's a nice way of looking at it too. So I'm going to let you go in one second because I know you do have maybe like a few things to do. I know <laughs> just a few. Um, but let me just ask you, uh, the question I always want to ask, which is sitting down for coffee with your 20 year old self. And with you, I would say relatively so little time has passed, but on the other hand, you've done so much. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's worthy. What would you want to tell 20 year old Kieran?
1: Yeah. I've thought about this. There's something a business school professor, uh, Graham Weaver, did as his last lecture. And it stuck with me. And I think it's the single best lesson I learned in business school. And it's what I would give my 20 year old self, which is the genie test. So right now, if you close your eyes or write down on a piece of paper, if a genie could give you anything in your career, what would it be? What would you ask the genie for? And I thought it was silly at first because I was like, this is... How is this even relevant? Um, I don't have a genie. We did it. We wrote down on paper. I don't have a genie. What are we doing? Um, yeah. And it, for me, it's like at that time, I knew. I was like, I want my startups to do X, Y, and Z or whatever. But I'd ask my 20-year-old self to write that down. And then I'd follow it up with what he followed it up with, which was the reason the genie test is powerful is because it tells you what you would truly want if we removed the fear of failure. That's what the genie is doing. It's removing your fear of failure. And I think it was incredibly enlightening. And it was just this aha moment for me of, oh my God, that's what I want. If I actually wasn't scared. And I don't think I would have, as a young 20-year-old thought that I was being held back by a fear of failure. I would have never said that. But when I think about what I was looking to do, the internships I was applying for and what I considered success at the time, it, it wasn't what I would have asked the genie for. And so... I would have asked myself to do that and then... And take it seriously. And take it seriously. And that's the real real trick. And this was a theme throughout this whole conversation in some ways is there's no fear in actually going for that thing, right? Worst case, you fall short and you're way further than you ever thought. And best case, you make it or you have clarity on your direction and you learn something along the way. And the real secret to the whole gig is that you're the genie. You are your own genie. You have the power to give yourself... Anything that you need and want to be successful,
0: you're the genie. Well, I don't think I could ask for a better point or sentence to end on. So I'll I'll wrap it there. I love that. I will try to remember that even now because I don't think it's ever too late. It's not only when you're a kid starting out, but you need to continue to do that genie test, even though sometimes the older we get, the more fears creep in, but it's important to keep it going. And you're great proof of that. Kiran Sinha, thank you so much for taking the time. It is really inspiring hearing about your story, whether it's how dance weaves into engineering and the lessons that you take with you from one point to another, even when things don't seem connected or just what you've built and learned along the way. Really, really inspiring. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts and send us your thoughts, any questions that you want answered or women you want to hear from on Twitter at Nareep Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. Coming up next week, she was born to a family with a prominent legacy in Afghanistan, raised as a boy by her father until the age of three, went to school in America, and a short trip back to Kabul changed the course of her life. maryam Mordak explains her own brand of feminism, finding the courage to walk away from something that's great on paper, and learning to communicate with the Taliban and her husband. Oh my God, I had to make a lot of changes. How I communicated, let me tell you, that was a struggle, okay? He was telling me, you are too so aggressive. You need to tone down. That is everybody's struggle, let me tell you. What is the secret? How did you learn then like to change your communication? So imagine like a girl that was in Afghanistan who had drivers, cleaners, cooks, bodyguards, people working under her telling them what to do without a thought of considering how they cared about how I communicated to a man who was like, you need to change. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Talia Golihov. I'm Nareet Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.